Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Buddhang Dhammang Sanghang Namasami And during these last few days, um, We've brought up the, or mentioned the topic of becoming here and there, and uh, so I thought I might start with that this evening. This is a, a uh, one of those terms that they uh, you know, we use the English word becoming. Um, but it's certainly when I was first in the monastery, it, kind of, it sounded strange to me. I thought, well, becoming what? And what's, what, what is this? Some kind of Buddhist jargon word that sort of everyone seems to know what it's referring to, except me. <laughs> what? And it had no sort of bearing on anything, or it didn't seem to be connected to anything. And, and so it, uh, I was puzzled about it. But then uh, the more that I... I um, engaged in the meditation and lived uh, in the monastery, uh, I began to, to get a feeling for what it was talking about. And that um, as, uh, as probably every single person in this room has, has witnessed, it's very easy for the, uh, for the heart to get caught in this sense of leaning into the moment, leaning towards the next thing. Because that is a little bit more promising than this. This has been a little bit disappointing. <laughs> but that, well, you, know, you never know. So it's that, that either ever so subtle or all the way to downright gross uh, overlooking of this in order to, to get onto that. That sense of um, moving towards the promise. There was a, um, a, a wonderful cartoon that I saw many years ago that illustrated this that was um, pinned up on the, the notice board for a long time at uh, the, um, the monastery in England. Uh, I'm not sure where it originally came from, um, but it was like one of those New Yorker cartoons. And it was uh, two, uh, two Buddhist monks sitting on a, a, a kind of a platform in a, in a Zendo meditation hall and uh, one has a slightly sort of burdened, uh, furrowed look on his face, and the other one is sort of tilted slightly towards him. And then the caption says, nothing happens next. <laughs> this is it. Nothing happens next. This is it. So that pretty much sums <laughs> Sums up both the, the feeling and then the, you know how cartoonists, the skilled cartoonists, can do that so well. Just like with a few lines, they capture the mood of, oh dear, <laughs> but uh, a sense of um, a pained realization uh, on the face of, the, of that person. Like, yeah, well, what's next? What's next? Because this can't be it. So um, this is a, a, a phenomenally significant uh, element in, in meditation practice, and um, whereas, uh, say, when we talk about uh, desire or craving being the, the cause of suffering in the classic expression of the four noble truths, uh, the sort of quintessence, the sort of centerpiece, the, 
a kind of source code of the of the Buddha's teaching. The um, when it, the when the description of of uh, tanha craving or thirst as the um, cause of suffering, the cause of dukkha is described. And normally, when we think of that, you know, craving or desire, we tend to think in terms of, of sense desire, like wanting something, wanting some pleasant object. That's when we think of that. You know, I desire something, I want something. That's how we, we, we customarily think of it. But when the Buddha, in his very first teaching, when the Buddha described the, the outlined the Four Noble Truths for the first time, he mentioned three kinds of, of uh, tanha. And it certainly sense desire you know, gets most of the press. It's a sort of sex and violence banner headlines, grabs all the attention kind of a piece. Um, and that, uh, you know, the, the desire for sense pleasure, and that's certainly that's the kind of thing that um, is uh, most um, prominent, you know, it sort of drags, uh, drags us around and, and creates trouble. But uh, as we start to, to get a, a bit of a perspective on, on sense desire, and our life is less dominated by that than it used to be, and, you know, the kind of people who are coming to spend 10 days of well-earned uh, holiday going without supper, <laughs> as well as a, a, a large array of other things, um, that uh, probably sense desire, yeah, pursuit of sense pleasure is not the kind of top of the, top of the list. Probably maybe some of you are thinking of reviewing that. <laughs> but uh, nevertheless, so when, we, when we start to practice meditation, then we begin to see that the, the other two elements of, of tanha of craving uh, start to become a bit, little bit more significant. We begin to see those are, are really the, um, uh, the you know they're the, they're the quiet little pieces down on sort of page fourteen and fifteen. Whereas <laughs> karma tanha, the desire for sense pleasure, is sort of front page banner headlines. So down on page fourteen, there's this desire to become bhava tanha. And then it's it's dear friend vibhavatana the desire to get rid of. These sound familiar. <laughs> the desire to become concentrated, to become wise, to uh, to get rid of my uh, irritating obsessive thoughts, to get rid of my anger problem, to uh, get rid of my arrogance. Says there in the books, isn't it? See, you know, the wise yogi, the, the you know, the good meditator will <laughs> free their heart from greed, hatred, and delusion. So yes, I'm supposed to become wise. I'm supposed to become concentrated. I'm supposed to become kind. I'm supposed to be become filled with loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. It says that. See, it's in the books. You know, I'm just following instructions. Get rid of greed, hatred, and delusion. You know, become wise, compassionate, generous, and kind, unselfish. You know, surely, aren't I doing the right thing? <laughs> but what we discover um, as we try to to develop the meditation is that uh, in the in the very effort to follow the instructions or to to cultivate right effort that there's this kind of uh, subtle self-based elements that, that creep in. And this is what we mean by bhava-tanha, vipava-tanha. It's where uh, skillful intention gets co-opted by ignorance, by not seeing clearly, by the, the self-centered uh, habits. Uh, when the, the Buddha was describing right effort, you know, one of the elements of the, of the, the, the path, say like the the first of the Four Noble Truths is the truth of, of dukkha. That is the, the kind of spiritual malaise. This is the, the, illness, the, the symptom, if you like, of the, of, of the illness. The, the feeling of discontent, alienation, wrongness. The universe shouldn't be quite like thisness. That kind of um, uh, feeling of dissatisfaction, dis-ease. Literally, dukkha means hard to bear and difficult to carry. So that's the symptom and then the, the cause, uh, as I was describing, as these different kinds of, of tanha. Then the, the, uh, 
the prognosis, since the, the Four Noble Truths is laid out like an Ayurvedic uh, medical diagnosis. So the prognosis is, yes, it's curable. <laughs> dukkha can come to an end. Dukkha can cease. There can be freedom from, from dukkha, freedom from that quality of alienation, dis-ease, and so forth. And then the fourth part is the medicine, which is what's called the Eightfold Path. And so the Buddha spent the vast majority of his teaching uh, career outlining the, these qualities, and particularly the Eightfold Path. And in, in that, one of, the element, one of the eight elements is that of right effort. Yeah. And it, it, these, this occurs in many, many, many teachings, and the Buddha emphasized it as being extraordinarily important. So when he, but when he defined right effort, then there's four elements to it. This, you, you will not be tested on this, by the way. except in your own, uh, on your own cushions. <laughs> but uh, when the Buddha outlined right effort, there's, there's four different pieces to it. There's the um, restraining of unwholesome states from arising, or if unwholesome states have already arisen, there's the letting go of those. Then there's the cultivation of wholesome states. And then what, and when wholesome states have been cultivated, or they, they, are, they are in existence, then there's the protecting or maintaining, cherishing of those. So um, there's you know, restraining and letting go of the unwholesome and the cultivation and, and sustaining of the wholesome. So that bears a very close resemblance, if you kind of go back a couple of paragraphs, <laughs> to the desire to become and the desire to get rid of. Well, how does that, you know, the desire to, to get rid of the unwholesome and the desire to, be, so to become wise and concentrated? But these are, are like, like in um, one of T.S. Eliot's poems, he just says it's like the live and the dead nettle. Uh, the live nettle and the dead nettle. You know, these, these two plants sit in the hedgerow beside each other and they look very similar, but they're actually completely different plants. And the one kind, the, the leaves will sting you. And the other kind, the, the leaves uh, are harmless. So that it's, uh, these, these two can be like the live and the dead nettle uh, nestling in the hedgerow next to each other. And that uh, whereas we can be sort of diligently feeling like we're, we're pursuing all the elements of right effort, we're kind of trying to develop the wholesome and keep it, keep it going and uh, let go of the unwholesome, restrain it from arising and so forth that un- unconsciously we can find the heart being pulled into these habits of, of becoming, trying to, um, to get to the next thing, trying to, to get rid of my problems. And the key element that you find in the midst of the whole thing is the, that of me, the I, the feeling of, of, of self, the kind of I, me, mine, the sense of ownership that's related to, to that experience. This is a, a, a slightly somewhat tricky and subtle area of the practice because certainly in the, the Buddha emphasizes over and over again, as I was saying, the necessity to, to cultivate, to, to extend effort, to expend effort. To, um, and we need a, you know, definitely to make a, you know, a direction in our practice. There's certainly the need to have well-developed motivation, direction. There needs, there's a definite oomph that is required. You can't, it's not just a matter of sort of Trying to sit there and be and do nothing. That's uh, sometimes people represent um, Buddhist practice in that way, a sort of ultimate quietism. But it's not that at all. You just have to look through a few of the texts, and it's just like a lot of doing <laughs> in there. But what you you find, and what I hope with this with this week, that uh, we can all begin to get a sense of a, a familiarity with that feeling of becoming. That um, what the the texture of that is, or the the, the smell of it. Because it's what, like a um, a subtle presence that we don't know is there until it's brought to our attention, and then we suddenly realize this is everywhere. <laughs> this is in the way I walk. This is in the way I eat. This is in the way I'm thinking. The way I'm trying to meditate. This it's always this leaning into the next moment, or that um, you know I don't have time for this. 
I'm not interested in. I'm not interested in this. <laughs> I don't want to bother with this. That kind of pushing away, rejecting, annihilating. I haven't got time for. So we get, uh, in a way, getting familiar with those those fragrances, getting to know those those textures, and that what we find is that as soon as we start to get to know those and seeing them sort of infiltrating the practice, then something in us is aware of that, our intuitive wisdom, the panya quality, the, the, the wise uh, and sensitive element uh, of, the, uh, of the mind, picks that up most of the time, I find, and says, oh yeah, right, we know that. As soon as we realize we're doing that, as soon as we realize that that's a habit that we are doing, that we are we are uh, creating that quality, then we experience we recognize the discomfort of it. It's just like you know not realizing that you're that you're you you know you've got your hand sort of tightly clenched, or when you're driving the car, you suddenly realize that you're white knuckled as you hold the wheel, and you say, "Oh, hang on a minute, <laughs> this wheel isn't going to escape me." Relax, and then you just loosen the grip just a notch, not so that you're taking your hands off the wheel. But you just loosen the grip a little bit, and then suddenly, oh, I didn't realize I was doing that. Or uh, another example that is uh, is very easy to to relate to is the the purring of the uh, the heating system here. Yeah, how many times during this last few days? Or those of you who are old time IMS aficionados, you know, have been worn out several zabutons and zafus, and yeah, it's probably several layers of skin and bone on your backsides. Hearing the, the 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 purring of the heat, so suddenly notice that the heating system has been purring, only when it goes off. You go, oh, suddenly the air is a bit thinner and lighter. The room has got a little less dense, and it was just because of that incessant sound had just switched off. We didn't realize there was that influence happening until it stopped. Now, becoming is uh, a, 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 an element um, of, a, and also, you know, the craving desires is an element of a larger structure that the Buddha describes in his teaching. That I thought it might be helpful to talk a little bit about this evening, which some of you, uh, many of you, may, uh, might well be familiar with, which is known as dependent origination, which is. Really, the Buddha's um, sort of fine, detailed description of, uh, in a way, the journey from the, the second truth to the third truth, uh, the second noble truth to the third noble truth, from the cause of dukkha to the cessation. That, uh, that's uh, um, the four noble truths is the sort of uh, broad outline, and then the teaching on dependent origination and cessation is like the fine anatomy of that. I won't try and sort of go into into full detail uh, about it you know, all the, this evening. It's, it's a it's a complex, intricate subject. But just to to bring out a few points, um, because it's such a helpful support for meditation and for helping us to to do what we're we're trying to to do here. You know, understand how this uh, this strange experience of human life does <laughs> does its thing. How it, how it all works. The um, maybe one place to start is just um, by um, the elements of um, the body and the mind coming together. There being a, a nama and rupa, body and mind, and consciousness. Then that um, supporting the, you know, our life within the body with its with its senses: eye, ear, nose, tongue. Um, body and mind. So in Buddhist psychology, you have six senses rather than five. And uh, the mind sense is, uh, say, the organ of that, that is the brain. And then what it perceives, just like the eye perceives light, the ear perceives sound, the nose smells odors and so forth, then the uh, the brain uh, perceives uh, ideas or memories or feelings, you know, moods. And so that uh, I found that really uh, revealing and, and helpful. 
that we just think of the, the mind in a way as another, the brain as another sense organ. But it also has an extra function of coordinating the activities of the other five. So sometimes they, they, they uh, compare the, the six senses to like the, the hand with its five fingers so that the, uh, the, or, the, the five external senses are like the fingers and then the, the mind sense uh, is the, the kind of meeting point of the other five, like the, the palm of the hand. So then having the, the, the body and mind and, and the six senses functioning, then we perceive something. We, we have an experience. We, there's a, 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 a sight that is seen or a, a sound or a, a thought. Um, you know, light strikes the, the eye and then that sends off um, some eye consciousness off to the, to the brain and we register. Oh, look, you know, there's the exit sign or there's... You know, um, the uh, the aisle down the middle of the the Dhamma hall, or there's you know, Catherine sitting here in the front row. So, um, so that we we see an object. There's there's an object there which uh, we uh, call contact. There's like the eye, the 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 organ and the um, the light and the eye organ, the light and then the consciousness, eye consciousness. All three of those gathered together, we call contact, sense contact. And then, uh, virtually instantaneously, following the contact, there's feeling, and that feeling might be pleasant or painful or neutral. And so, then, very soon after that feeling, uh, there comes the the reaction of tanha or craving. So you have contact, pasa, then feeling, vedana, and then tanha. And tanha is that if it's pleasant, I want it. Yeah. If it's painful, like I just as I think Tarania was outlining uh, the, uh, a little while ago, um, if it's pleasant, I want it. If it's uh, if it's painful, uh, get it out of here. I don't want it. And uh, and if it's neutral, I'm not interested. Or this is boring. <laughs> or uh, we create some opinion about it. So there's a movement towards that. So it, there's a, a, a change in the heart. And then from that feeling of craving, uh, tanha, then that, if that's not understood, then that, that start, the, the process just sort of amplifies. So there's a, a pursuing. So whereas there's just initially, there's a registering of, a, of an object, then there's a ooh. <laughs> and that ooh expands into uh, after, after craving, then there's clinging. As a kind of reaching out and and, uh, and taking hold of it, which is called upadana, clinging, and then clinging uh, leads to what's uh, to becoming, like the um, so the the, the full scale absorption into that object. You know, I've got to have it, or I can't stand it. I got to, you know, it's got to got to get rid of it. So that what starts out as a, a little feeling or a sort of twitch in the heart then amplifies and inflates until there's a complete absorption into it. Or another way of looking at it is that whereas we see that object as a sort of a little part of our, our world, then as we uh, absorb into uh, wanting to have it or wanting to get rid of it, then it's like the rest of the universe sort of <laughs> falls off the screen. And, that, and probably most of us in our lives have had some kind of desire like that, where there was an... Anybody? <laughs> Please raise... <laughs> Please raise your hands if you've never experienced this. <laughs> that uh, you know, somehow the rest of the universe vanishes and there's just this thing that I've got to have. And, 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 and then as that, the becoming process is where it goes from that little sort of flicker of, um, uh, of kind of leaning towards it uh, to this whole full-scale absorption. And that when there is that absorption, it's like, the, uh, and it's, I think becoming in a way is an excellent word for it because the, the various psychologists who've, who've measured desire, who've been sort of tracking desire with little machines that have flashing lights on and electric wires, that the moment of maximum excitement is just, is when you know you're going to get what you want, but you haven't, you haven't quite got it. <laughs> That's the big thrill. That's what that's what the whole advertising industry runs on. That's like when you you're gonna you you know you're gonna get it, but uh, you haven't quite got it yet. It's definitely within your grasp. 
then that, the excitement is, is um, maximized. That's the, the big thrill. So you can also liken it to riding a wave. It's like the wave has picked you up and you're just cresting that, that wave and you're in kind of full, full flight. It's the yes moment. And at that point, everything else in the universe has vanished, right? So then, after becoming, there comes birth. Birth is the, the point of no return, as we know, <laughs> since, <laughs> since all of us were born and didn't go back. So, um, that uh, birth is where we've actually made our purchase. <laughs> We we've take hold. We've not only taken hold of the thing that we're becoming, but we've actually there's a commitment, an irreversible commitment to it, and it, it's um, and uh, you know as we as we all know, birth is painful, in uh, as well as being glorious. And so that then that thing that we pursued, either this terrible thing that we had to get rid of, and life was you know was was going to be an, an endless torture until we, it, it had, had gone. And then there's that blissful moment of relief, like, ah, when you've been agonizing over whether you should change your posture here in the meditation hall, and you've been looking at your watch surreptitiously, hoping no one is watching you, dealing with your feelings of being a bad yogi who looks at their watch. And then finally you're, you're overwhelmed by the, you know, the, the burning in several joints all at once, and you decide to move. And then there's this bliss of release. Ah. So kind of that ease sort of washes through your, all your limbs. And then there's like, you probably have about three or four seconds. <laughs> right? I mean, and this is how I experience it. And there's a sort of, ah, oh, wow. And then you notice, oh no. <laughs> now it's the right one. Oh, that's not fair. This is birth, <laughs> where you know we've, we've committed ourselves. We've been born into that. We've somehow we've believed that feeling that that um, yeah, if I could just get away from this pain, I'll be happy. We've, the, the universe has shrunk to that size. If I could just get rid of this, if I just didn't have that guy at work, if I just didn't, if I could just pay off my debt. If I could, <laughs> if I just didn't have this personality. <laughs> I could just have a kind of a psychic makeover. I could just be on a different retreat. <laughs> you don't have to tell me if you've been thinking that. <laughs> but that's what happens, isn't it? It's like the, you know, the, 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 the whole thing shrinks in that way. And then... But then birth, you know, once we're born, then the, the life of the being lives itself through. So now, you know, we've committed ourselves to that, so then we have to live through it. So you've, we've acquired that object, and now we have to make the payments. Or, or that we thought it was so neat, so good, and then and we, we thought it was so beautiful, and then someone sees it and says, where did you get that from? <laughs> or like, speaking of birth, my... Uh, my uh, when my eldest sister was was born, um, uh, my uh, this was my parents' first child, and um, so uh, my father's, uh, my mother was uh, they were both in well into their thirties. Uh, my father was about thirty seven when they married. My mother thirty one, and she'd always presumed that uh, you know, she was in those days, sort of just in the forties, fifties, being unmarried at thirty one was like well, you know. Never gonna, uh, never gonna find a guy. Oh, now I'm old and past it. But you know, she'd met my dad, and, and they were married, and now she had a baby. And so she was like an utter bliss of new motherhood. My father, bless his heart, his first comment was, "Do they always look like that?" <laughs> <laughs> so. <laughs> So then my mother's kind of bliss of motherhood turned into homicidal <laughs> irritation. She didn't actually murder him, but she, she certainly felt um, some 
annoyance. <laughs> so once something is is born, once we're born, once we, we're kind of committed, and we have to follow it through. And so now we have you know made, made our choice, we've made our move, we made our shift, and so there's that um, along with that the the kind of the happiness that we we got with the sort of the change, then we we get the rest of it, and so then we have uh, we find ourselves having to, to to deal with that, and then also inevitably, almost invariably, and you can you can argue with me if you, if you like, but somewhere in there, there's going to be some disappointment involved, <coughs> right? I had my first lesson on this um, when I was aged about four, and. Um, we grew, uh, I grew up in the country, in a countryside in, in Kent, in England. And uh, we lived on a little farm. And uh, once a week or so, my mother would go into the, into the village and do, this, do some shopping. And in the village, there was this toy shop. And we were, we were pretty poor. So the, the, the system in my family was that you only got presents on Christmas and birthdays. That was it. Um, and so... Um, in the window of this toy shop, there was uh, a little, uh, they had these um, toy cars. I was about three or four at this time. And uh, forgive me if you heard this story before, but this is a very powerful lesson. You know, Paticha Samupada, on a, for a, you know, a four, an English four-year-old. So uh, this was in 1960, I think. Around there, and uh, in Europe at that time, uh, in in England and around Europe, there was a um, a kind of three wheeled car that was called a bubble car. It had two wheels at the front and one wheel at the back, and a door that that uh, opened sort of at the front of the car. I think they were made by BMW actually, and they were sort of the latest modern thing for getting around in the big cities and parking in tiny spaces. They were very small and round. They were like they were like a bubble. And uh, in the window of this toy shop, they had a, a, a little uh, mauve bubble car. And I fell in love completely with this little mauve bubble car. Just deeply enamored. And so that when we would, we would uh, go through the village and I would rush to the, to the toy shop and press my nose against the window and stare at this beautiful, utterly desirable mauve bubble car. And uh, I begged and I begged and I begged my mother to get me this, this little mo bubble car. But, you know, rules was rules. And it's like, if it's not Christmas or birthdays, then, you know, forget it. Like, uh, no negotiation possible. You know, even at that age, I was a, a, a vigorous talker <laughs> and <laughs> negotiator. But my mother, is, uh, my, my t- capacity for talking is outweighed by my mother's extraordinary resilience. <laughs> And so uh, she resisted all pleadings and and um, cajolings. But uh, you know, every every week we'd go into the to the village, and I'd see, you know, rush up to the window and kind of look at this this gorgeous, wonderful little mauve bubble car. And uh, and I begged her, and I begged her, and I begged her, and I, I and I said, I remember saying many times over, if you just get me this little mauve bubble car, I'll never, I'll never, I'll, I'll never want anything ever again. I'll never ask you for anything ever again. And I really meant it. I could not imagine. I couldn't imagine that once I got that, that, that anything could be missing from my life. I really couldn't. And um, I thought, how could she be so unreasonable? I mean, all she's got to do is get me the car, and then she's fixed for life. You know, all my desires met for the duration. Yes. You'd think it was a great deal, wouldn't you? But then, uh, to my horror, then uh, as uh, I think it was my birthday was approaching, then went into the uh, a couple of weeks before my birthday, as we went into the village, and I rushed up to the toy shop window and I pressed my nose against the glass, and (gasps) no bubble car, gone. Oh, I was also a tearful child, so I had a minor minor breakdown (laughs) on the street, and. uh, and uh, and I was kind of so upset, and I thought, oh, it's gone, it's gone, you know. And, and that uh, they, uh, maybe they got another one. And, and my mother, um, you know, kept a straight face, and you know, 
and um, didn't let on. And she said, oh, well, never mind, you know, there's, there's, other, there's other cars in the world. No, there are, there are my little <laughs> bubble car. That was the most wonderful thing in the world, and I wanted it, and I haven't got it, and it's gone. And I was really heartbroken. But she, uh, she, had, uh, uh, she knew something that I didn't. And then, uh, so I was really upset and, and unhappy about this. And then, lo and behold, my birthday came around, and ta-da! There, as I unwrapped the presents, there was this little mauve bubble car. And I was so happy. I was completely uh, delighted and and, uh, overjoyed for most of the rest of the day. (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, I won't kind of go on at length, but uh, sure enough, uh, it uh, it became kind of ordinary after a little while. And then a day or two later when I I, uh, found myself yeah, well, I didn't find myself. I uh, just un- uh, unwittingly asked my mother for something, and she said, "You said <laughs> that if you got the little mo bubble car, you would never want anything else ever again." I said, "Well, <laughs> you know, I mean, my sister got one, <laughs> and so uh, she. Um, we had this sort of uh, well, well-meaning sparring match going on for some time." Uh, after that, and uh, that little mo bubble car sat on the, the shelf in my in my room for for many years after that. And then uh, when I left home, uh, when I was seventeen, then uh, it uh, yeah, it still stuck around. And then when my parents moved house, and the, the, you know, the little mo bubble car went with them. They they, they moved house, and sort of, and I uh, given away. Uh, when I came back from Thailand as a monk, and I was sort of clearing out my room and getting rid of all my stuff, then yeah, my mother made sure that uh, you know the little mo bubble car wasn't going. You know, I, w- I couldn't, con- I couldn't possibly, you know, give that away. And um, I said, hey, God, you know, it's, it's mine. <laughs> but then she wouldn't let me give it away. <laughs> I was just going to take it to the to the Goodwill store, and she wouldn't let me give it away because it was uh, such a emblem of, of that, uh, my, my little childhood. And then um, she, it's moved house with, with uh, them you know, two or three times. And, uh, and then finally, finally last year, she passed away last summer. And finally, I took the little mo bubble car and I put it in her coffin. It's true. It's true. It's a very sweet moment. <laughs> So now six feet down in the in the soil in the, in the Sherbourne, the little mo bubble car <laughs> still bringing its teaching. But that was that was really a powerful lesson for me because you know, I and when she was teasing me like you know you said you would never want anything I was kind of surprised. I said yeah I really meant that but how could that happen? Because I was I was so sure. I really was so sure, but oh, somehow it didn't turn out that way, and, uh, and it perplexed me. You know, I, I couldn't figure out how that how that worked, um, and because it was so real, you know, it was just it was so true that I couldn't want anything else. I mean, it's it's the only thing that I that I'm missing, and yet less than a day after it was mine. It was. Uh, it didn't. Fit, it didn't fill the, the hole. So this, we all have our own little <laughs> bubbles, right? <laughs> that uh, change uh, uh, throughout the day, throughout the hour or the minute. You know, the mind is pursuing, and they're believing in that that promise and kind of absorbing into that <coughs> momentum, and uh, and and we continually find ourselves with that quality of a disappointment that it didn't quite. Fulfill us. It didn't. It didn't uh, make us whole. That that belief, or that plan, or that qualification, or that relationship, or that car, or that house, or that change of posture, <laughs> even that blissful mind state, you know, that uh, that we had two days ago, that we've been desperately trying to get back to. You know that 
that seeing that that disappointment this is um if we don't understand what that is then what happens is that we we feel in a, a slightly sort of bereft state we feel like there's something missing there's a a part of us that is not complete not whole and so then if we we sort of that that's carried around as a sort of hunger uh, in the in the heart and then then the next time the way that it works if you've noticed is that as soon as then we there's this sort of nebulous hunger and then as soon as we see another thing that gives us the suspicion that it might fulfill that promise or that that answer that hunger then ooh what's that over there or maybe I'll try that or oh, there's another one oh it didn't quite work the last time that was an unlucky break <laughs> Maybe if I just shift my posture this way, or maybe if I <laughs> try the Tibetans, or maybe I... <laughs> they don't have such long sittings. <laughs> this is called the cycle of rebirth. The cycle of birth and death, uh, or the, the uh, sangsara that um, uh, Ajahn Punadhamma so eloquently talked about. This is the, the, uh, the dangers of sangsara, is this endless hungering, endless uh, spinning on this cycle, or you know, using more sort of psychological jargon, it's like a cycle of addiction, feeding the habit uh, over and over and over and over, and just like breaking any addiction, there's ways that, that there's, there's a number of different ways we can uh, approach it, and so that. You know, if there are people here who have never experienced or haven't sort of witnessed that kind of pattern, then you know, <laughs> uh, forgive me for going on at length, but I think it's pretty much guaranteed that we've all had this experience and that and that kind of cyclical pattern of being caught in the same habits, maybe shifting objects, but following that that kind of endless cycling, um, being caught in, uh, in feeling incomplete. Yeah, uh, being excited by something, drawn by something, uh, irritated by something, pursuing that, gratifying it, re- being relieved by it, and then feeling the hunger again. So to understand that and to, to help ourselves break the cycle, then what we find is there's a, there's a, a number of different ways to approach it. And particularly the, 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 in, in classical terms, they talk about the, the weakest link is between feeling and craving. Vedana and tanha. That's the, the, the kind of uh, point to aim the meditation at. Because we find that we can, uh, we can feel pain or feel pleasure or neutral feeling. And we do have the capacity just to leave it at that. That uh, just because we like something doesn't mean to say that we have to have it. So sometimes when people, and it's also a little bit of a problem with the word desire as we use it in English, because we, we can use the word desire for both liking something and also wanting to possess it, wanting to have it. Um, and so that's why I tend to use craving, because uh, that's got a much more of an accurate sort of agitated, uh, self-based aura to it. Where desire can be something that's quite wholesome, like the desire for enlightenment, the desire to help other people. And that, as Ajahn Chah stressed many, many times in his teaching, that if we didn't have desire, we would never have come to this place. <laughs> we wouldn't have, have made any effort with our meditation. So there are certainly kinds of desire that are completely wholesome, skillful. So that's why maybe in English, a craving is a better word. So that with, uh, with our practice, it's so helpful to get familiar with um, the world of feeling and training ourselves just to, to, to let the mind, let the heart rest just with the realm of, of feeling. Because so, sometimes with Buddhist practice, when they, as I was saying about desire, that people think, I'm not supposed to have any desire, so if I like something, that's bad, I should stop liking it. Or if I dislike something, that's even worse. Yeah, that's 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 uh, that's wrong to to dislike things. So, we we find ourselves trying to sort of fit the way we are, the way the mind is, into this sort of idealized model of of a of a mind which doesn't like or dislike anything, a kind of completely neutralized 
sort of Thorazine type state, you know, Thorazinized, if such a word exists, where we're just sort of uh, being, <laughs> not liking, not disliking, kind of zombified, neutralized, kind of semi-catatonic state. Well, this is not the aim of the Buddha Dhamma. Catatonia is not the aim of the Buddhist, of Buddhist practice, even though we might end up there occasionally. <laughs> Inadvertently, um, through excessive dullness, but we're not aiming at that. We're not trying to just neutralize the mind. So we shouldn't be afraid of or, or rejecting of feelings of like or dislike. When we taste something which is pleasing, then it's delicious. When we taste something that's bitter, it's bitter. It's not, we're not trying to pretend that those feelings are, are not there. Or when something is, we, we, something delights us, we see that it's beautiful or, or, or noble or, or um, appealing. Yes, there's that feeling of pleasure. Or if something is kind of ugly or bitter or repugnant, we're, we're not pretending that that's not the case. But we're beginning to recognize that, yes, I can feel completely repelled by that smell or that, that picture or that, that feeling. But that doesn't mean to say I have to hate it. So we've been, in a way, sort of slightly tangentially, we've been approaching this a lot with physical pain. You know, dealing with, I mean, many people on this retreat are experiencing a lot of physical pain. I was reflecting on this, you know, also just sort of looking through all the people's sign-up sheets and like all the various different pain medications <laughs> people are on and different sort of ailments and arthritis and rheumatism and and I was reflecting that, um, yeah, well, a lot of people have to deal with a lot of pain. You know, the, the average age of, of people on this retreat, this is, you know, the uh, sort of somewhere between 50 and 60, this is sort of the boomer, the boomer effect. You know, there's sort of down at one end, you've got the, you know, the, a couple of 20-somethings, and you've got, you know, Flora, the magnificent, up at the other end. She's not with us this evening, but uh, 96, 96, and still... Chipper, <laughs> more and more chipper by the year. But uh, the majority is sort of somewhere between 50 and 60 there. Ajahn Punadama and I did the statistics on this retreat last time we were here. And it's, it was an absolutely perfect bell curve. A perfect bell curve, completely symmetrical. And it peaked. Like more than 50% of the people on this retreat were 18 in 1967. <laughs> the summer those who are, who just turned into adulthood in the summer of love are now here. <laughs> so of course that means you're now fifty something, and that the aches and pains are setting in, and also that we're you know in this age you know, where everyone's living a lot longer, and so that we're all uh, we're staying alive longer, dying from less sort of catastrophic diseases. So we're living longer, and also this is the sort of self-aware generation. So we're not only living longer with more aches and pains, but we're paying more attention to it. <laughs> I just had this insight a couple of days ago. It's like, previous generation, it was all kind of martinis and, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, as many distractions as you could kind of get away with. But uh, self-awareness and the aging body. Hmm. <laughs> so you didn't realize you were signing up for this. <laughs> But uh, it's not, I wouldn't say it's a bad thing at all. But it certainly means that we, we're having to, to really open the heart to a lot of, uh, of discomfort and the, the um, limitations uh, of the aging body. Uh, but we begin to find that once we've sort of climbed over the, that's not fair, and <laughs> why me, and I don't like this, when we climb over those uh, reactive patterns, um, which are very, you know, very common, and you know, you shouldn't sort of—it's it, not—it's not, it's not uh, uh, something that we need to take personally. You know, the society conditions us to believe that we have the right to live with a, a pain-free, completely healthy, fully functional body with no embarrassing ailments or leakages. <laughs> Until we, until we fade out blissfully, sort of pop off in our sleep, you know, at ninety-nine, and that's, and and look good, 
all the time, you know, into the bargain. You know, we still look 23, you know. And uh, that's the kind of delusion that we're, that we're, we're fed, so that when we kind of get a little bit of a creak here and, a, and, a, and, a, and an ache there and, and, you know, and the ears don't work so well and, the, and you know, various other things are not functioning as we would choose, then we feel like, well, that's not fair, that's not right. You know, and so we, we, we feel hard done by or that we're a bit of a failure or things aren't, you know, aren't as they should be. Um, but you know that if we contemplate, if we listen to the Buddha's teaching, or we've sort of contemplated that you know, aging, sickness, and and death are, are part of the deal. That was the small print. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing is going wrong. It's just this was the deal that we signed up for. We just didn't read the whole contract. <laughs> that. Uh, once we, we can recognize that, then we can begin to see, yeah, it's just feet. This is a painful feeling, but I don't have to hate it. I don't, I'm not suppressing it. I'm not pretending that it's nice or I like it. But here it is. And similarly, pleasant feeling. Um, you know, we're not pretending that it's not delicious or beautiful. We're not, we're not saying that uh, it's, it's evil or wrong or bad. Uh, unwholesome to to like something that's beautiful or to to feel that you know pleasure at something that there's a delightful fragrance or a taste sound that feeling is there but we 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 see that there's a there's a leap there's a, a barrier that's crossed when we go from I like it to I want it you know it's beautiful and I got to have it and so Oftentimes we don't even we don't realize there's any kind of a gap there. It's just you know if I, if I like it I got to have it. <laughs> if I don't like it it shouldn't be here. It's wrong. It's bad. But the, the more that we train the meditation to aim at that point, the more we realize we do have a choice. There's like a fork in the road, and that okay. Well, which way do I want to go? If I stay with the feeling, then uh, there can be this beautiful pleasure and I can enjoy it and I can be with it and, and, and then it does its thing and then it fades away and when it's faded away there's no sense of loss I'm d- delighted while it's here and when it's gone then I, I know that's part of its cycle and it's, there's, it's, nothing is lost if there's a painful feeling then I'm able to be with it while it's ple- present and I'm not waiting for it to go away but I'm not uh, not enjoying it but it's uh, it's held within an environment of, of peacefulness. There's nothing wrong with it. The universe is not out of order. There's no dukkha involved with that painfulness. It's not wrong. And so that even though it's painful, the, the heart is at ease with it. Similarly, if something, even though something is beautiful, the heart is at ease with it. So that then, when the, and then when the painful thing fades out, then we are... Uh, we are able to enjoy its absence, but we're not uh, not waiting for it to go away, because that's uh, that whole kind of waiting. I am stuck with this painful feeling. Uh, how can I get rid of it? When's it going to go? This is becoming the desire to get to get rid of vibhava tanha. What can I do to get rid of this this pain? This pain is, shouldn't be here, or. Um, the desire to become this is a beautiful feeling. How can I keep it? How can I get back to it? This is this is now I've got it. I can, this is mine. <coughs> so that we're we're tra- using the meditation to to re- to recognize those tendencies and to restrain them. Like this is like in the right efforts. It's that the restraining of the unwholesome is that oh well, this is really delicious. <coughs> this is completely pleasant or or unpleasant. You know we have uh, in speaking of. I mean, on the first night, I was talking about the heavenly messengers. Well, you know, it's gallons of phlegm, and <laughs> mucus have been shared <laughs> these last few days, and you know, uh, and so it's very. Some people are feeling very uncomfortable, you know, coughing a lot, and sneezing, and you know, all of the the discomforts of the body. And that I'm, I'm sure are not wanted. It's like, oh, hooray! I'm coughing again today. That's great. You know, unless you've got a really bad problem, <laughs> unless you're a sociopath. You know, 
you're not going to be thinking that. But um, it can be really unwanted and unliked. But it's still, we realize, it's up to me whether I create a problem out of that or not. There's a fork in the road. Now what do I choose to do? And even though we might have an extremely strong habit of like, <laughs> you know, I'm going that way. Because we just, that's the way we always go. That's the rut that we follow. There's, there, there is a fork in the road. It is there. There is a choice. And even though we might be heavily habituated to go down one track, the, the, what the practice does, the more mindfulness that we establish, the more we're able to just say, no, that, that's a really, a really compulsive pull, but I don't have to go down there. And that, and that we find that, that when we are able to restrain that, we be able, even if it's just for a few moments, we begin to say, oh, this is what it's like to really experience pleasure without trying to keep it or do something with it. Or like Ajahn Puna was talking about the sunrise over the Mekong. You know, if you can just, if I could just leave this alone. Ah. Oh, wow, I've learned how to do it. Oh, damn. <laughs> no, I've got it. <laughs> As you were saying this afternoon, it's like, ding. <laughs> like one of those, uh, those kind of uh, TV game shows. It's like you have to get through talking for, tw- for, for 30 seconds without saying yes or no. You know? So we're able to, you know, the more that we, we develop mindfulness, the more we can see how beautiful life is. Even when it's something is painful or unwanted or just boring, you know, that it's neutral, utterly mediocre, that when we, we learn to just stay with the feeling, to, to keep with that, then we really experience life's beauty. And it's a, it's, it's a strange quality. You know, what, it's what you know, the Buddha referred to this as the, the middle way, keeping to the, the middle there's a balancedness, a, a coherence, an in integration that that our experience has when we're able to just you know, stay with the feeling. And also, it's not just physical feeling, um, like a you know, pleasant um, or you know, physical sensation or painful physical sensation. I mean, it's in a way that the, um, those are more clearly outlined and are less sort of complicated by a lot of thought patterns. But it's, it also works with emotion. So that we might be having a, a feeling of, of grief or sadness, a feeling of, um, of anger or a feeling of longing, you know, or a feeling of excitement, any of the different kinds of emotions that we have that have got all kinds of interesting stories woven into them. You know, I'm excited because I'm thinking about such and such, or I'm angry because, you know, so-and-so did this, or I'm grieving because, you know, you know, I lost this person dear to me. But in exactly the same way, we find that we can uh, stay with the, with the simple purity of the feeling. And, you know, a pain, even a painful feeling, like, you know, like grief. I've had this experience myself where, you know, the tears are running down your face, kind of gushing forth with this kind of deep, deep sense of grief. And it's absolutely okay. Nothing is being suppressed. Nothing is, is being explained. I also found when that, when that was happening, as soon as my mind started to think, oh, I wish, only wish I hadn't, then the tears would stop. <laughs> as the verbiage began, the, the kind of, the system clogged. And the, as soon as the, the words stopped, then you could just feel that, the simplicity, and I'm not saying that it's intrinsically a great thing to be crying, but in that particular instance, it was really clear that just to let the feeling be, just to kind of know that, that grief of, uh, and the, the depth of that feeling, just for what it was, just to let it do its thing, and not to make any complication, not to wish for it to be over, not to to be explaining it or whining about it or creating a whole sort of uh, psychological profile for it. Just, this is grief. feels like this. And it's, you know, having a body and a mind, having been born, this is one of those things we can experience, just like you know, anger or love or joy or fear or hate. And just as Tarani was talking about last night in the Discourse on the Foundations of Mindfulness, you know, knowing the angry mind is angry, the mind free from anger is free from anger. Knowing the, 
The expanded mind is expanded, the contracted mind is contracted. So it's that simplicity and purity of knowing, just being able to to rest in that quality. As things take their shape, do their thing. And we're, we're able to, uh, in a way, experience their, their, their truth, their true nature, the Dhamma of those. That this is, these are all as- attributes of nature. The heart is aware of that, kind of the perfection of their naturalness. And maybe the last thing to, to mention is a, is a kind of curiosity of the Thai language. Because, you know, we might think, well, that doesn't sound like much. But yet, when we, when we, we relate to our experience in that way, then there's a, 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 a transcendent quality. There's a real release in the heart. That It's not just that it's, it's sort of simple and, and uh, clear, but then in a way that, that, that there's a transcendence that occurs with that. And in the Thai language, the word for ordinary is tamada. No, it means literally means normal, ordinary, you know, unremarkable. But it comes from the Pali word dhammata, which means of the nature of dhamma, of the nature of, of uh, ultimate reality. So that, and it's not like the meaning is distorted. It's just saying that which we. But it's kind of that's. There's a whole teaching in there, like. That which is of the nature of Dhamma, that which is the, the fundamental reality of things, you know, it's so present, it's so, it's so uh, you know, all-pervasive that we call it normal. <laughs> so we overlook it. We don't think it's anything special. But when we are able to simply uh, open to that quality and be with the experience of any, uh, any feeling, any experience in its sort of simp- its pure simplicity, then underneath that ordinariness we find the dhamma. <laughs> like you can peel off the 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 kind of veneer of well, pff, big deal. You know, feelings are feelings. So what? <laughs> but then we 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 let that outer layer, that that veil, fall away and say, oh, <gasps> it's a feeling. <laughs> Oh, it's just this, and there's a there's a, a an extraordinary beauty and uh, purity in that. So, I offer these thoughts for consideration this evening. We could uh, <coughs> finish with the sharing of blessings. Shall we try the Pali version? Go wild for change. Kind of Theravadan wildness. Annamaya Udisana Ditana Gatayo Banama Upajaya Gunutara Acharyupakara Jamata Pita Janyataka Surya Chandimaraja Gunawa Tanara Picha Brahmamara Chahinda Chalokampala Chandevatayamomita manusachama chataverikapichasabesata 
Sāvadāya-vayāta-jātho-bhāve-bhāve-ujuchitāṁ-satipānyā-sāle Kāvirīyāminā-mārālabhā-tu-nokā-saṅkhā-tun-ca-virīyesu-me-bhūnā-dīpāvaro-nā-to-dhāmo-nā-to-vāru-tamo-nā-to-pāce-kabhūdo-